Sunday morning in July in the Pacific Northwest. A young man was picking up a few things at the grocery store and he noticed that there was an older lady who seemed to be following him around the store. He chose not to think any more about it than just a coincidence that they were shopping in the same aisles. And he continued on his mission to just grab a few things. When he got to the checkout line, she suddenly quickly slipped in front of him. Pardon me, she said. I'm sorry if my staring at you has made you feel uncomfortable, but it's just that you look like my son who died recently. I'm very sorry, replied the young man. Is there anything I can do for you? Yes, she said. As I leave the store, could you holler and wave to me saying, Goodbye, mother? It would make me feel so much better. Well, sure, I can do that, he answered. After the woman had her groceries scanned and bagged and put back in the shopping cart, she headed toward the door, and the young man did what she asked. He waved and called out to her, Goodbye, mother. She smiled and waved, Goodbye, son. When the cashier finished scanning his groceries, she said to the young man, That'll be $193.27. How can it be so much? I only got a few things. Well, your mother, who just left, said your, her son would pay for it. Some goodbyes hurt more than others. I begin with that story because we're in the final chapter of the book of Romans. In the final verses of the chapter, in which Paul is sending his greetings to the church of Rome as he signs off on this letter that he's dictated to them. And we are in the process of saying goodbye to the series that we've been in now for 12 months. And it was my intention when I started the notes that today would be the last message, but I got good news, bad news, however you want to look at it. It won't be the last message because I didn't make it all the way to the end. I didn't make it very far at all because of what I felt really strongly we needed to focus on in the closing moments of this service today. Last Sunday, we read the first 16 verses and I covered a good chunk, 16 verses in one week. That's pretty amazing for me. And in those 16 verses, the Apostle Paul greeted 24 people in Rome that he knew or knew of, 17 men and 7 women. He greeted two households and three house churches. Um, Paul was a people person. He loved God with all of his heart. And he loved people. And he reached out to people with the love of God. A holy God-given love. We closed the message last Sunday morning by declaring it doesn't matter where we've come from, where we're going, who we are, what our ethnic origin, what our gender, what our status in life. In Christ, in Christ, we are one in the bond of love. In Christ, we are one in the bond of love. We're going to pick it up in the 17th verse this morning. Paul has just concluded all of those greetings to those 24 named individuals. And at verse 17, he goes on to say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He said, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, to, to folks in Rome, and because it's in the Bible, that appeal is to you and I as well. Amen? Amen? Number one, protect the unity of the body of Christ and protect pure doctrine. Protect 
protect the unity of the body of Christ and pure doctrine. He said, watch out for those who cause divisions. Watch out for those who cause disunity, division. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, as he approaches the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops and he looks up to the Father and he prays this great high priestly prayer. If there's any Lord's Prayer, John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. And in the context of that prayer, he said in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed for our unity. Not only did he pray for our unity, but he went to the cross, and by his sacrificial death, he broke down every barrier that would keep us from being unified. He broke down every barrier. But the enemy of the church He is a cunning deceiver who with his lies and our susceptibility to issues of pride uses people with their selfish ambitions to disrupt the unity of the body of Christ to cause division. Now we don't know if there is any false teachers that had made it to Rome Although Paul addressed in chapters 14 and 15 the issue of the weaker and the stronger about eating meat and those kinds of things. But Paul says, I want you to be on guard. Watch out for those folks who come to you with a new revelation. Watch out for those folks who want to, to emphasize one particular aspect of our spiritual journey as being far more important than any other. Watch out for those who tell you you have to add something to your faith in Jesus Christ in order to be a real Christian, a true believer. Unfortunately, there are those who claim to be followers of Jesus who are, think they are superior in their faith because they dress in a certain way or don't dress in a certain way. Because they are proficient in a particular gift of the Spirit that believes, gives a, a stamp of validity to their faith in Jesus that puts them a step above everyone else. Some of the false teaching that Paul was against in that day was the doctrine of the Judaizers who claimed you can't really be a Christian unless first you become a proselyte Jew and you're circumcised, and you eat kosher meat, and you take care of all the Holy Sabbath days. Paul gives us two characteristics of those who cause division. Two characteristics of those who bring division to the family of God and the house of God. He said, watch out for those who are self-serving. Watch out for those who are self-serving. Verse 18 says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Unfortunately, we as humans are, we are susceptible to be enamored by the applause of men. There have been men and women who have been given a natural charisma And they have become more concerned about using that charisma to speak in a way that will make them popular, that will give them a large 
following with great notoriety. They use scripture, but just the portions they want. And they teach them with passion and such a smooth talk that it sounds absolutely right. And they cause division in the house of the Lord. Letter B said, watch out for flattery. Watch out for flattery. Verse 18 continues, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. When I read this morning, my mind went back to what Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says these words, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We are the children of God. We have been accepted in the beloved. We have been given authority in the name of Jesus to ask for his kingdom to come, to be expanded, to be extended on planet earth. But whatever we are, whatever we become, whatever we will be is by the grace of God. Be careful of ministries that tell you what you want to hear about how wonderful and powerful you are without respect to obedience to Jesus. The people who tell you and write in books and get on TV and get in auditoriums and tell you you can command God to do what you want him to do, they scare the out of me. The individuals who tell you that oh, I gotta be careful about what I that if you have faith you'll never have a problem, you'll never be sick, and your children will all be perfect. That's not the gospel the way it was written. Paul warned Timothy, there's a time, time coming when men will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what does Paul say to do about these folks? Avoid them. Avoid false teachers. He just gives that two-word command at the end of verse 17. Avoid them. He doesn't say go after them. He doesn't say create a war with them. Just avoid them. Just avoid them. Because if you go after them, you just create more division, more disunity. Avoid them. Pray for them. Avoid them. Number two, continue to obey the gospel you received. Continue to obey the gospel you received. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Paul was impressed with the church at Rome. Remember how it started? No, that was 12 months ago. In chapter 1, verse 8. He said, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They were famous at that point in time for their obedience to the sound doctrine that had been preached by the apostles who had come and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He expresses his confidence that the believers in the church of Rome will not be taken in by false teachers. He rejoices in the maturity and the purity of their doctrine. He encourages them, number three, focus on what is right and remain innocent about what is evil. Focus on what is right and remain innocent about what is evil. 
It's verse 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. That echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. In that particular context, Jesus is giving the 12 instructions before he sends them out to preach the kingdom of God, to lay hands on people, to pray for the sick, see them healed, to cast out demons. In the 16th verse of Matthew 10, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents. Scripture talks about how serpents are kind of crafty. Be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. I fear too often we're more like the opposite. When I read this, be wise as serpent, innocent doves, there's, there's all kinds of scriptures where I could run with this. Some of them that came to my mind are like in Paul's words um, in Philippians chapter 2 where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, live out what you believe and don't be lazy about it. Don't be complacent. But put your faith to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not that you're going to work to earn your salvation, but because you have salvation, you're going to live what is going on inside of you. A couple verses after that, in that same chapter, he said, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. In another passage, Paul said to the church at Corinth, you are living epistles, read of all men. Your life is testimony to the fact that the gospel is true, that Jesus lives, that he transforms lives from the inside out when they're surrendered to him. More than ever, the culture that we live in today needs us to be a shining light in a dark world that is twisted, a culture that's a twisted generation. Number four, remember who wins. Remember who wins. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Seems kind of an oxymoron, doesn't it? The God of peace. But he's going to bring peace to everything. He is the Prince of Peace. What a powerful promise. It's the promise that God made back to Adam and Eve Actually, it's a promise God made to Satan himself. Back in Genesis chapter 3, after Eve had been deceived by the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit, and then Adam chose to join her in her disobedience, God came on the scene and he meted out the consequences of that first sin. The first curse was given to the serpent used by Satan himself as a vehicle to tempt Eve. The curse was given to the serpent and to the Satan himself, if you please. The serpent was cursed to crawl, to crawl on his belly and eat dust all of his life. And in verse 15, while it carries some truth about our interactions with snakes, enmity between us, how many of you love snakes? There's a few people who love snakes. Most of us there's, get the, you know, when we see them. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. This is perhaps the first mention of the gospel story in the Bible. This is God's promise that Satan will be defeated by the Messiah. In case you're wondering about the validity of my interpretation that the serpent is Satan, when you go to the book of Revelation, you read in chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 20, verse 2, John calls him the dragon, the ancient serpent. The dragon, the ancient serpent. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In Luke chapter 10, we read where Jesus sent out 72 other than the 12. There was another 72 that were following Jesus. And he sent them out to go to the cities that he was soon to go to. He said, I want you to go tell about the kingdom of God. I want you to pray for people, lay hands on them, and see them healed. They go. And then it says they return with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. They submit to us in your name. And Jesus said this in verse 18 of Luke 10. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And verse 20 said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The Bible teaches us that Satan or Lucifer, the devil, our enemy, had his beginning in heaven. He was an angel in heaven. He was the leader of worship in heaven, given a great deal of responsibility before the throne of God. But he was not content with serving God. He wanted to be God. He was obviously a charismatic angel because it says when God kicked him out of heaven, a third of the angels followed him. We now call them demons. His lack of submission to God got them all expelled from heaven and a war has ensued ever since between the one the Bible calls the prince of the air and the kingdom of God. But it is a war in which the outcome for Satan and his demons has already been determined. God said, the seed of woman, and that was a prophecy that from a virgin would come the Messiah. It didn't say the seed of man, but the seed of woman. He will bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel. Satan bruised the heel of Christ on the day that he was brutally beaten and crucified on the cross. But what he didn't understand is that when he attacked that heel, that heel was going to stomp on his head. Ultimately, he will be crushed by the God of peace. Between now and then, the Bible tells us that Satan is at work to create chaos and death in this world through the use of his ability to lie and deceive. Jesus said his natural tongue, his natural speech is to lie. He's the father of all lies. He claims to have authority over the world. The Bible says that sinners are under his dominion. He is permitted to afflict the righteous at times. Read the story of Job. Read about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and we'll read about that in a few moments. Satan 
blinds the minds of unbelievers to truth. You wonder how people in this nation that was founded as one nation under God, even though they didn't become part of our, our pledge until the 1950s. But you know what the primer was? The, the book that they taught children to read with? was the Holy Bible. They threw the Bible out of school. They threw the prayer out of school. And now people make decisions that are, I mean, they're so opposite of what God's Word said. And, and, and they call that my right. They call it logical. And you scratch your head and you wonder, how can they call those things logical? How can they call them right? It's because their minds have been blinded deceived by the master deceiver. Satan is constantly contending against the children of God. Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He talks about we wrestle against him. Jesus, or Satan even, had the audacity to tempt the Son of God. Trying to get him to disobey the Father, to disobey the plan, to short-circuit the process of salvation. And he used the Bible. He is adept at taking Scripture out of context and convincing you that this is a truth. How come we have so many cults in the world? It's because they were deceived. They were deceived by the great liar. He's a thief. He's a thief. Jesus said, when, when the word of God is thrown out like seed and it falls on some soil, he talks about the wayside. He said, the wicked one comes and scoops up that seed before it can take root. There are people who hear the word of God. When they leave that moment, whether it was conversation with you, your house, or in the marketplace, or they came and heard a sermon, and they leave, and Satan plants doubts, and he scrapes away the seeds that have been planted because he comes to kill and destroy. He's a thief. Satan's responsible for the hypocrites in the church. Remember, Jesus told the parable about a guy who had a wheat field. And somebody came in the night and, and sowed tares, a plant, a weed that looks just like wheat until it comes harvest time. And at harvest time, it's obvious that it's not wheat, but a weed. Jesus said, the tares are the children of the wicked one. It was Satan who filled the heart of Jesus or Judas to betray Jesus. Enough about him. Back to the promise. The God of peace will soon crush him under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush him under your feet. Hold on to that promise if you're feeling pressure from the one who comes to accuse us. He's called the accuser, the brethren, King James language. Accuser. Uh, uh, and he, he tries to lay condemnation. The God of peace will soon crush him under his feet. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That is the devil. Jesus died and rose again to destroy the power of death, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning 
is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy, to crush him under his feet. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I want you to see verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rules and authorities go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you discover it's those principalities and powers and the rules. He disarmed them. The only power Satan has is to lie and deceive you. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Because Satan is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe. We have been given the power to resist him. James 4, 7. We have been given the spiritual armor to withstand his attacks. We read that in Ephesians 6, 11. We've been given the faith to be able to withstand him and not give him a place in our minds. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 and Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. We don't have to give him place. We can resist him. His final demise, Revelation 20, 10. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He is a defeated foe. Paul said, watch out for those who cause division. But the promise is this. They cannot destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 20, one more time, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He already went to the next slide, which is at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul is the apostle of grace. Someone did a search of the word grace in the New Testament, and they said it's 131 times that it appears. 99 of them are in Paul's letters. This benediction that we read in verse 20 of chapter 16 is the same benediction you read in 1 Corinthians 16, 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians chapter 6, verse 18 says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24 says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians 4.23 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians 4.18 I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.28 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Second Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And if you go to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and Philemon, they all end with the same benediction. Grace be with you. Do you know how the Bible ends? you know what the last verse in the Bible is, in the book of Revelation? I'll tell you. Next slide, please. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That's how 
John ended his great revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The gospel is all about grace. The gospel is all about grace. The book of Romans is about grace. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified by his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There won't be anybody in heaven. You've heard me say it a hundred times if you've heard it once, if you've been here very long. Nobody will stand in heaven and say, I'm here because I made it on my own. I'm a self-made Christian. Does not exist. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We are saved by grace and grace alone. That's one of the things that Paul wants us to understand when he writes this letter to the Roman church. It is the fact that became so clear to Martin Luther and was the impetus to the great Reformation. The Protestant church breaking away from the Catholic church when he saw that, that the just shall live by faith and were saved by grace alone. It's faith alone. It's grace alone. It was God's love that caused him to become one of us, to die in our place. This is from R.C. Sproul. He said, People are perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for salvation. And this is his, his quote. I put it in your notes. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. He goes on to say, grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. We like to think we'll go to heaven because we deserve to be there. End of quote. That's so true. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. But we're saved by grace and grace alone. The Apostle Paul gave his life to preach that message to any place where nobody had heard that message before. We're saved by grace alone. And it's most amazing. It's most amazing who God chose to be the messenger of grace. He was one of the most legalistic, rule-following people that ever walked the planet. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, he had. Pharisees were all about doing these things, keeping these laws to prove how holy and righteous they were. And he comes to this conclusion after he meets Jesus Christ. And the longer he knows Jesus Christ, he comes to this understanding. All those great things that I did before, they're garbage. They're garbage. King James uses a, a, a more succinct word, D-U-N-G. For those of you who can spell, you know what that is. His, his testimony near the end of his ministry. As he writes to his son in the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I 
and the foremost. This is the man who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, wrote the greatest treatise on salvation that there is, and his summation of his life is, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. I'm the greatest sinner saved by God's grace. He could, he and John Newton, they came from two opposite ends of culture. Paul was as religious as you could be. John Newton was as wicked as you could be, a slave trader, a captain of a ship. But when Newton found Christ, they could both sing the same song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. Max Lucado tells a story in his book, The Gift for All People. Cinderella's castle at Disneyland was packed with kids and parents. Suddenly all the children rushed to one side. It's a good thing it was a castle, not a boat. It would have tipped over. The pristine princess had entered the room. Cinderella, a gorgeous young girl with each hair in place and flawless skin and a beaming smile. She stood waist deep in a garden of kids, each wanting to touch and be touched. The other side of the castle was now vacant except for a boy, maybe seven or eight years old. His age was hard to determine because of the disfigurement of his body. Dwarfed in height, face deformed. He stood watching quietly and wistfully, holding the hand of an older brother. Do you know what he wanted? He wanted to be with the children. He longed to be in the middle of the kids reaching Cinderella, calling her name. But can't you feel his fear? Fear of yet another rejection? Fear of being taunted again, mocked again. Don't you wish Cinderella would go to him? She did. She saw the little boy and immediately began walking in his direction. Politely but firmly inching through the crowd of children, she finally broke free. She walked quickly across the floor. She knelt at eye level, that stunned little boy, and placed a kiss on his face. Ricardo concludes, the story reminds me of another royal figure. The names are different, but it isn't the story almost the same. Rather than a princess of Disney, the essays are about the Prince of Peace. Rather than a boy in the castle, our story is about you and me. In both cases, a gift was given. In both cases, love was shared. In both cases, the lovely one performed a gesture beyond words. But Jesus did more than Cinderella. Oh, so much more. Cinderella gave only a kiss. When she stood to leave, she took her beauty with her. The boy was still deformed. What if Cinderella had done what Jesus did? What if she had assumed his state? What if she had somehow given her beauty and taken on his disfigurement? That's what Jesus did. He took our suffering on him. He felt our pain. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for the evil that we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we were healed by his wounds. In grace, Jesus gave more than a kiss. He gave beauty. Isaiah said, He's exchanged our ashes for his beauty. We got the best of the trade. Jesus paid more than a visit. He paid for our mistakes. He paid for our mistakes. Unless you think you're becoming liberal. He took more than a minute. He took away our sin. It was more than just mistakes. It was sin. 
He took away our sin. We have been saved by grace and grace alone. That is the message of Romans. But Paul's benediction at the end of Romans and every one of his letters is more than that. John 1.16 says, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Jesus not only saved us by his grace, but there's a continual flow of his grace. Fresh grace. More grace. Every day. It's like the manna in the Old Testament. Fresh grace for this day. One writer said, think of God's grace like the Niagara Falls. Only bigger and more infinite. It just keeps coming and it keeps coming. It keeps coming. John Piper describes more grace this way. If I say grace be with you, I mean starting now. Not that you haven't experienced it in the past, or you're not experiencing grace right to this moment, but may God's grace go with you from this moment on in the future. May God be gracious in and through you, beginning in this moment. You see, not only are we saved by grace, we live by grace. We live by grace alone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul shares a brief portion of his personal testimony with the church at Corinth. He begins with sharing this moment in his life when somehow he was transported in some manner. He said, I don't know if I was in the body or had not a body of experience, but I had this revelation, I had this vision where I went into the third heaven and I heard things that I can't tell you because I don't have the words and it's not even lawful for me to tell you. He'd gone to the place where God's throne is, where the angels are singing holy, holy, holy forever around the throne. He heard those things. He saw those things. And then he goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient. Grace is our source of power. Grace is our source of power. Paul, Jesus said, I want you to live in dependence upon my grace. I want you to live knowing that you are not self-sufficient. I want you to live with that thorn. Looking to me, when I think about the grace for every day, He giveth more grace, the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. Second verse said, When we have exhausted our soul of endurance, when our strength has failed, and the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. His love has no limit. 
His grace has no measure. His power has no band or bring on unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure, His power has no bound of renown unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. In order to experience the grace of God, humility is required. Humility is required. That's the next slide. Stay awake up there. Humility is required. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace will strengthen us. Paul writing to his son in the Lord, 2 Timothy 2.1. This is his last letter that Paul wrote. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The last note is this. There is grace for my every need. There is grace for my every need. Paul, the writer of Hebrews said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Would you stand with me as we sing this next song? <laughs>